Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the ministers here on staff, and it is uh, good to be together this morning. If you're a guest with us, we are honored uh, that you would join us here in worship today. I uh, heard a story recently about a world-famous chemistry professor, and he often traveled around lecturing, but over the years, uh, his eyesight began to fail, and so he hired a chauffeur. And uh, as they spent the years driving from lecture to lecture, eventually the chauffeur and the chemist became great friends, until one day, on their way to another lecture, uh, the chauffeur piped up and he said, you know, professor, I've heard you give this same lecture dozens and dozens of times. I bet I could give it every bit as well as you could. The professor said, 50 bucks says you can. So the chauffeur said, all right, you're on. So uh, they get to the lecture hall, and when they do, they switch places. It's the chauffeur who goes in and sits at the head of the table. And when the time comes to give the speech, it's the chauffeur who steps up into the podium and delivers the lecture absolutely perfectly, word for word. They give him a standing ovation. The crowd is absolutely amazed at his brilliant insights. And then one of the scientists in the crowd stands up and hollers out, sir, Your discoveries are absolutely incredible. Do you mind if we ask you a few questions? (laughs) He says, you you see, uh, the the element strontium, when combined with the radioactive isotopes, does not produce a normal reaction. Why is that, professor? The chauffeur stands there in in, in the podium, clearly caught off guard, until he says, really? Really? That is the silliest question I have ever heard. Why, that is so elementary, I bet even my chauffeur could answer that. (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes I wonder if uh, Christmas is a little bit like that because we have heard this same story over and over and over and over again I bet we could even repeat it word for word but sometimes I wonder do we really know what it means because yes absolutely Christmas is about the gift of Jesus but what does that gift mean Every gift does have a meaning, you know. And and sometimes the meaning behind the gift is a difficult one to accept. For example, if you give me a book on dieting or a bathroom scale, then for me to accept that gift means that I have to own up to some difficult realities about myself. Oh, they're saying that maybe I am a couple pounds heavier than I should be. Uh, For every gift has a meaning. This is why in your office Christmas party, you don't give somebody deodorant as a present. (laughs) Every gift has a meaning. This is why you don't put laundry detergent or dish soap in your wife's stocking at Christmas. Every gift has a meaning, and sometimes that meaning is a difficult one to accept. I remember in our very first Christmas together as a married couple, my wife, Rebecca, got me a book entitled Humility. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) I can take a hint, right? Every gift has a meaning, and yes, Christmas absolutely is about the greatest gift ever, the gift of Jesus, God himself coming to earth. That's what we've talked about the last two weeks. Steve kicked it off talking about revelation, God to us. And then last week, Derek talked about incarnation, God with us. But today, I just want to kind of answer this question and explore it a little bit. What, what does this gift mean? And if I, th- I think if we look hard enough, we find a clue in the nativity. 
You know, we see nativity scenes all around this time of year. They come in various shapes and sizes. Last Christmas, our son Judah got one of those little Fisher Price nativity sets, the, the hard plastic. It's like indestructible. He can't break it. The thing's bulletproof. I love that nativity scene. And so we actually just left it out all year for him to play with. And so baby Jesus has been on lots of rides in Judah's Tonka dump truck. And, uh, and I, in fact, <laughs> one, one afternoon, I got, I got home from work last week and Rebecca told me that Judah had put like half of the nativity animals in timeout because they were disobeying. Um, <laughs> and uh, that Mary and the camel had gotten in trouble because they were biting and so they had to get spankings. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's Christmas in the Proctor house. But, but we've all seen nativity scenes around, right? You see them on the top of the piano or in somebody's front yard or in the entryway to the department store. And yeah, sure, they're all different, but they all are kind of the same also. You know, you've got your little, nice little plastic Caucasian light up Jesus laying there in the manger and you've got his angelic mother kneeling kneeling down, looking lovingly at him. And you've got his father kneeling there by the manger as well. He's got perfectly straight white teeth, you know, and the angel is hovering over the stable and the three wise men are there with their camels who are also kneeling reverently. And Mary's donkey is waiting patiently outside. The shepherds are there with their perfectly white and well-behaved lambs who are also there staring lovingly down into the manger. Now, Never mind the fact that the Bible doesn't mention anything about Mary riding on a donkey. She could have had to walk to Bethlehem, for all we know. Never mind that scripture doesn't mention a stable and that Jesus was most likely actually born in the lower part of someone's home where the animals would sleep and then laid in a trough that was dug in the floor while his parents enjoyed the warmth of Middle Eastern hospitality, probably with some distant relatives. Never mind the fact that scripture says nothing about camels or there being three wise men or the fact that the wise men didn't even come until later on. Never mind that the angel and the shepherds and the wise men were never all together at the same time, nor was it likely winter, nor was it likely a silent night where all is calm and all is bright. Now, before you go throwing out all your nativity sets, let me just say that I love the nativity scene. Because regardless of its accuracy to the Middle Eastern reality of what actually happened, the nativity scene serves as a really powerful reminder of the purpose of Jesus' coming, the meaning behind the gift. And so for just a second, I wanna look past the manger and Mary and Joseph. I wanna look past the wise men and the shepherds and the angel. And I wanna just zoom in on some of the little small background characters there in the nativity scene, the sheep. And I guess my first question is, who in their right mind would let sheep near a baby? <laughs> that should be item number one on the list of take-home instructions they send you with from the hospital, right? Don't let your infant hang out with livestock. And yet, in Luke chapter two, where we read the story of Jesus's birth, of the 20 verses that tell us the story of his arrival, 12 of them have to do with sheep or their shepherds. That's over half. So, so, so why the sheep? And actually, the sheep would go on to play a pretty big role in the life of this baby in the manger. Jesus would grow up and he would call himself the good shepherd who cares for his sheep and lays down his life for his sheep. And he would call us, his followers, his sheep. And that's not a very flattering comparison for us. Uh, my brother raises sheep and he was telling me a few weeks ago about how one of his sheep broke out and actually broke into the pig pen and got into the pig's food. And the sheep, because it has no self-control, it ate itself to death. Sheep are, sheep are well known for being utterly defenseless, really only good at self-destruction. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? 
Maybe we need a shepherd after all. But that doesn't really answer our question. Why, why the sheep at the nativity? Well, why do people raise sheep anyway? Uh, well, most sheep are raised for their wool that's sheared every spring. Some folks like to eat lamb. But actually, many scholars agree that the sheep in and around Bethlehem were raised for a different purpose, a special purpose. You see, Bethlehem is just a few miles from Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. What happened at the temple? Sacrifices. Every day at the temple, uh, there would be two sheep offered as sacrifices, one in the morning, one in the evening. Various other special occasions would require the additional offering of a lamb or a ram here and there, but the most significant sacrifice of all came at the annual Passover feast. Passover is where the Jews remembered how back when they were slaves in Egypt and God had told them to paint the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes so that when he came and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptian families, he would pass over the, the houses that were covered by the blood of a lamb. And so they were delivered. And every year the Jews would celebrate and remember their deliverance, their freedom, their salvation through the blood of a lamb. And as they, as they gathered, every family would then offer a, a, a lamb at, at the Passover time. Josephus is a Jewish historian, and he says that every year at Passover, about 200,000 were offered. 200,000, that's a huge number. Even if he is exaggerating, even half of that is still a staggering amount. So where do all these sheep come from, right? It's not like everybody's a sheep farmer. Well, that's where the sheep in and around Bethlehem come into play. Bethlehem's just a few miles from Jerusalem, you know. And so many of the sheep there likely belonged to the priests themselves, were raised to be used in the various sacrifices. If that's true, then that means that the male lambs and the hills around Bethlehem really had just one purpose. They were born to die, born to spill their blood on the altar in Jerusalem for the sins of the people. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? This Christ child, born practically smack in the middle of all these other animals, destined to die on the altar of the Lord. And Jesus, too, was born to die on the altar of the Lord. Except that altar looked a whole lot like a cross so that God could then pass over the sins of not just a family or a nation, but of the entire world. He is our Passover lamb which is why we read this text so often in here. Isaiah 53 says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, this baby in the nativity is not just any baby. He was born to die. And that's what the sheep in the nativity scene remind us of. They remind us of the meaning behind this gift. And this meaning means that we have to confront some difficult truths about ourselves. We have to confront the truth that this gift of Jesus was given to us because we are sinful. We are rebellious. We are brokenhearted. We are hard-hearted. We are disobedient. We are deserving of God's wrath. 
We need someone to save us. That is our greatest and deepest need. If our greatest need was for uh, more money, then the angel would have showed up to the shepherds and their sheep and said, today in the town of David, an economist has been born. If our greatest need was for more pleasure, the angel would have showed up to the shepherds and said, hey, today in the town of David, an entertainer has been born. If our greatest need was for better health, then the angel might have showed up and said, today in the town of David, a physician has been born. If our greatest need was for a better government, then the angel would have showed up and said, today in the town of David, a politician has been born. But God knew that our greatest need was not for more money or more pleasure or better health or a better government. God knew that our greatest and deepest need, that what we needed more than anything else, was rescue from our sin. Which is why the good news from the angel to the shepherds and their sheep then is still the good news to us today. That today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah, the Lord. Which is why the great symbol of our faith is not the manger, but the cross. Jesus died on the cross to save you. I hope that's something you've heard a thousand times. And I hope you continue to hear it. But I, I want to push a little bit deeper again. Why? What is, what's the meaning behind this cross? How, how, how did it work? Well the, well, the Bible uses a lot of different images to describe exactly what happened on the cross, how Jesus saves us through his death. The first major image comes from the battlefield. The fancy term is Christus Victor which basically means that Jesus is victorious. He is triumphant over sin and death and hell and the devil through his death and resurrection. Paul tells us this in Colossians 2.15. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the first image. The second major image for how Jesus saves us through his death comes from the marketplace. The word is redemption, which means that we were enslaved, but that in his death, Jesus pays the price to buy us back and set us free. Romans chapter three says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We see the next image actually in the very next verse. The third image comes from the shrine. The big fancy word is propitiation which basically means that because of your sin, because of my sin, we are deserving of God's righteous wrath upon us. And yet in his death, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so that we do not have to. Romans three says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to, to take the wrath of God through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The fourth major image for what Jesus did on the cross comes from the courtroom. And, and the word is justification. Basically, it means that we were standing trial and we were guilty. But that Jesus comes in and through his death on the cross, he not only takes the guilty verdict, the condemnation that we deserve, he also takes the punishment. He takes the sentencing on our behalf, dying so that the judge can declare us innocent, justified. Romans 5 says, since we've now been justified, declared innocent by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And the fifth image for what Jesus comes on the did on the cross comes from the home. 
The word is reconciliation. That because of our sin, we were banished, kicked out of the garden, isolated from our father. But Jesus restores the broken relationship. He allows us to come home to God. Colossians 1 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's just like a super brief cliff notes snapshot version of what Jesus did when he died. But, but Jesus' death on the cross is like this diamond and it's got all these beautiful, dazzling, glittering facets and every way you turn it, it reflects the light a little bit differently and you can see a different side of it. That's like the truth. It's this beautiful, amazing, marvelous truth we could spend forever talking about, but at the core of it all is this central concept that Jesus died for us. God for us. That's what we're talking about today. This is the core of our salvation. Jesus died for us. And the big fancy $5 term for that is penal substitution. I want you to remember that, penal substitution, which basically is the belief that Christ took our place, substitution, and died as punishment for our sin, penal. Penal means punishment, substitution means he died in our place. Let's take that one word at a time. First, penal. Let's break this down. Penal means that it was punishment for our sin. Jesus' death on the cross was not just a great act of love, it was not just a great example for us to follow, but that he actually died the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God. Now, now, now some people hear that and they say, well, well why, does, why does God have to punish sin? Can't, can't he just say, I forgive you and move on? Seems kind of petty, doesn't it, to have to punish somebody? But think about it. No country in the world operates like that. You don't just get to break a law and then say, oops, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better next time. No, that would just encourage more law-breaking. If you commit a crime, you have to pay the penalty, right? That's how nations and governments operate. If you speed, you have to pay the ticket. If you rob a bank, you have to do some jail time. And our God is a good father, which means that as any good father does, he will not let injustice and rebellion go unanswered. Rather, our God, who is the giver of life, when we rebelled against him, we cut ourselves off from that life, which means that we deserve death. And in order for God to be just, he has to execute that punishment. That's the first word, penal. And the next word is substitution. That in Jesus' death, he was our substitute. He died in our place, on our behalf. He died for us. And he knew that's why he came. In Mark 10, Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was a substitute, penal substitution. The belief that we have sinned, we have violated God's law, we deserve the death penalty. But that then Jesus came and he took our place and he took our punishment because he lived this perfect life, fulfilling all the demands of the law and that in his death, he, he, he fulfilled the law, he, he appeased the righteous wrath of the Father so that he could grant us forgiveness and freedom. God satisfied himself by substituting himself for us. He is both fully just and fully loving on the cross. The great scholar uh, John Stott says it a lot better than I ever could. He says it like this. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 
Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. At the cross, beauty becomes the beast. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our great and good father looks at the world and says, I must address this wickedness. I cannot leave the evil in these people unanswered. So I will send my son. Son, you go. Become the denial of Peter. Son, you go. Become the the betrayal of Judas. Son, you go. Become the murder of Saul. Son, you go. Become the adultery of David. Son, you go. Become Eve who ate the apple and Adam who ate it with her. Son, you go. Take up their lies, their lust, their pride, their greed, their hatred, their gluttony, their wicked words and wandering eyes and wayward hearts. Son, you go. Take up their guilt. Take up their shame. Take up the cross, son. You go. Take it up for them. And I have to be honest with you this morning. I don't love you like that. I have two sons, Judah and Calvin, and I love them so much that it hurts. And if I had to give my son for you to keep you out of hell, I don't think I would do it. You'd have to go. Because I don't have that kind of love. But God, God, who has a mercy so rich and a love so deep, this great God gave his one and only son for you, for me, God for us. There's a wonderful author by the name of Brendan Manning. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Originally, though, his, his name wasn't Brennan. His birth name was Richard Manning. And Manning tells the story of how he got the name Brennan. While he was growing up, Richard's best friend was a guy named Ray. And Richard and Ray did everything together. They went to school together. They took girls out on double dates together. When they were teenagers, they even bought a car together. And later when the Korean War broke out, they enlisted for the Marines together. They went to boot camp together. They fought on the front lines together. And one night they're sitting in a foxhole together, reminiscing about the good old days back in Brooklyn. And Richard's doing most of the talking and Ray's just sitting there in the foxhole, listening, taking some bites from a chocolate bar. When all of a sudden a live grenade lands there in the foxhole. And in an instant, without even hesitation, Ray drops his chocolate bar, looks at Richard, winks, and throws himself on the grenade. It exploded instantly. Ray was killed. 
and Richard was completely unharmed. Ray had died so that Richard could live. Later on in his life, Richard would go on to become a priest. And in the process of becoming a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. And so he thought of his friend Ray, Ray Brennan. And so he took the name Brennan, Brennan Manning. And years later, Brennan Manning was back in Brooklyn visiting with with Ray's mother. They're just staying up late one night drinking tea and talking when Brennan Manning asked her, he said, do you think Ray loved me? And at that moment, Ray's mother, Mrs. Brennan, got up and she shook her finger in Brennan Manning's face and she shouted, what more could he have done for you? Brennan Manning says that at that moment, he had an epiphany and he imagined himself there at Calvary, standing before the cross, wondering, does God really love me? And Mary, pointing to her son's body dangling from the cross, saying, what more? could he have done for you? Paul says it like this in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story of Christmas is a story of God's love that is so relentless that it will go even to the darkest places to reach you. His love will go even to a humble manger, even all the way to a bloody cross. For us. So what does this mean then? This means that your family may have turned their backs on you. Your job may have disillusioned you. Your dreams may have let you down. Your spouse may have disappointed you. Your children may have failed you. But the one who sculpted the Himalayas is for you. The one who planted every tree and cares for every bird is for you. The one who measured out the depths of the ocean with just the palm of his hand is for you. The one who spoke a hundred billion stars and a hundred million galaxies into existence is for you right now, in this moment, as you are. This means that if you came in here today burdened with guilt and not sure what to do with your failures because you're, you're stuck and you blew it again this week, take heart. Jesus died for you. This means that if you're here today and you're exhausted from trying to do enough good things to earn God's favor, that's not the gospel. The good news is that God is for you. That means that if you came in here today and you're wondering what kind of a God this is, if he could possibly love a person like you, here's your proof. Look at the cross. God is for you. This means that if you're lost and you're stuck and you realize finally that you have broken your life beyond your ability to repair it, all is not lost. God is for you. 
This means that if you have never given your life to Jesus in repentance and faith and obedience and baptism, you can do it today and receive life eternal because God is for you. And this means that if moving forward, you're facing uncertainty and anxiety and failing health and maybe even death, you don't have to be afraid because the one who conquered death and holds the future is for you. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the answer to guilt and despair and shame and regret and bitterness and pain and brokenness and fear. And yeah, it might not all go away instantly. Yeah, it's a process, but all of a sudden it just isn't that important anymore. Because the meaning behind the gift is this. Jesus' death on your behalf proves once and for all that God is for you. So as Paul says in Romans 8, what then shall we say? In response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father. truth you're for us for me that you know every part of me and you love me anyway God thank you thank you for the cross thank you for the empty grave and Lord as, as we see those funny little people in the nativity this year let us not forget the sheep. Let us not forget the cross. Draw us ever back to the other silent night. The night when your son, our precious Passover lamb, was slain for us. And we're here at this time again to take the juice and to take the bread and just to say thank you, God. So we say in the words of the angels of heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and honor and glory and wisdom and praise forever and ever. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.